are listening to the Wayne County Community College District's Critical Conversations podcast with host Ed Clementi. Welcome to Wayne County Community College District's Critical Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Ed Clemente. Today, we're pleased to have Brittany F. Alter-Kane with us, who is the Executive Director of the Michigan University Research Corridor. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Ed, for having me. Yes. The University Research Corridor, can you kind of give us a little bit of what the mission and the purpose is and how it started? Sure. So we uh, were founded in 2006 by the university presidents at the time. The effort was to understand better and communicate better what the value is of having three, what is classified by the uh, Carnegie classification as a research one institution. That's a highly intensive research institution of which there are only around 100, I think 113 nationally. Um, and the fact that Michigan has three that are all public serving is pretty unique. So the URC was formed to help convey the value proposition of having these three R1s in the state. What does it mean for for the residents and for companies and for our economy to have these three? What's our impact? So that that was essentially why we were formed. And an additional part of that was to uh, work to form collaborations in terms of research with faculty across our institutions and to also connect their research with industry. So there's a closer connect there. Sort of like, uh, I remember this term from when I was doing a lot of my information for figuring this out, but there is sort of uh, basic research and then there's applied research. And right. you focus on both or do you focus mainly on the more application of it or what do you consider it? you both? I don't know. So we take a look at and we measure all research. Um, I will tell you that in many cases, for our purposes, it's easier to form collaborations among researchers and connect them to industry when we're talking about applied research or translational research. Yes, because I know that there's such a demand for both, actually. And the general public, I guess, if you gave a layman's answer for that, I'll let you do it more than me. But uh, <laughs> so, so if you were to tell somebody, what is the difference between basic research and applied research? Right. So uh, basic research is really fundamentally important. Um, you're not always sure where it's going to come out what's going to come of it. It's really a pursuit of, of pure research, right? Or, or pure science. Uh, whereas applied research is taking, uh, doing the research to take what we might know to develop a technology that could be applied to a certain, uh, solving a problem or addressing a challenge or a new, developing a new technology that would be ready for market. There are so many different innovations and technologies that go into making that iPhone do everything it needs to do or any cell phone for those who don't use Apple products either way. And the point being that many of them were born at the university. Some of those uh, discoveries were from basic research where they weren't sure where it was leading. They were just pursuing some interest and, and discovery, um, and later realized there was an application for it. In some cases, there is a very intended purpose with that to have, uh, do the research that's specifically applied to a problem or a connection that they're seeking. And so, um, both are really important, uh, in, in, in terms of discovery. So, 
I, I just want to make sure people understand what a research university is. And so why don't we talk a little bit about your three universities because uh, it, it's got to be kind of interesting working with three universities that sort of compete with each other, but at the same time, you're trying to come up with common goals for them that betterment for the state because we should mention too, they're all public universities too because yes. sometimes these research corridors are not all public. So uh, <laughs> in our case, they all are though. They so are. Why, don't, why don't you kind of break them down a little bit? Just give a what's important about each one of them, if you want to. So um, you know the co- competition you alluded to, Ed. Uh, that that's true. They do compete, and I think it's probably human nature to think of them as being competitive. And but at the URC, and certainly among our leadership. Um, I don't think they think of it that way. I think they look for the the complementary um, uh, virtues that they bring together as a as an alliance. And so, you know, one of the things I I like to bring to people's attention is how different and unique they are. You know, when you think about Wayne State right here in Detroit, um, it is a premier urban uh, institution, and so we're very fortunate to have that institution right here. Um, we did a study a few years ago and we found that while all three of our institutions are certainly doing work in the city of Detroit, very important work, and they're having an impact, um, we would not have the depth of impact in the city but for Wayne State being here. And so that, you know, that's important for the overall alliance. We all benefit from that. Um, similarly, we would not have the scale of research impact that we do but for the University of Michigan, which is um, the largest, most research-intensive public institution in the nation, um, they're they're enormous in that way and making significant contributions. We all benefit from that, and we would not have the extensive reach that we do as an alliance into literally every county. We have impact, um, and and we would not do that but for having Michigan State University in our alliance, which is you know arguably the nation's premier land grant institution. So um, collectively, they they do uh, really important things as distinct institutions, but also together, and that's a large part what we we, we try to capture, um, measure, communicate, and foster. MSU, one other thing I was going to mention too, you said that they're in every county, and but they, they literally are. They have an office in every county, don't they? Or something that's – They have a presence. Yes. Yeah. What is it – what are they called locally? I forgot in each county. Uh, I, I know, I'm not sure, but uh, we are referring to the MSU Extension yes. Service. Yeah, that's the word and I was so, looking for. Um, and, and an extension service, which is more than 100 years old now, uh, is – and we, we tend to – I was – I don't want to say we – I'll refer to me. When I came in before I really understood a lot about MSU Extension, I had this preconceived notion that it's it's out in rural areas, it's more agriculturally uh, driven. And what I came to learn actually is it's very locally driven. It's hyper-local in a lot of ways. So while certainly that might be true in some counties, some rural areas, and it does have an ag focus, in many places it is responding to the needs of that community. So for instance, the extension service right here in the city of Detroit um, does a lot of interesting things, particularly with youth, whether it's you know, teaching them to garden or it's teaching a coding class, um, you know, and boosting STEM um, participation among uh, the the young residents here in the city. Uh, so that, you know, that's that's something that's important to this community here. 
And you would find similar, uh, very localized efforts in, in different communities, depending on the community. And that's, that's really interesting to me. And, so I, I can right. give you another example. We went to Kalamazoo for a dialogue with the local experts, as well as some URC experts, uh, talking about PFAS, the, the sure. contamination in parchment, which is right next door to Kalamazoo. And we invited... Why don't of, you tell people... You don't have to give the the scientific name for it, but it's basically <laughs> it's a, it's something a, that's it's, uh, pollution? It's a, it's, it's, it is. So it's an emerging contaminant in, in water systems. It's not just in Michigan, but nationwide. Um, it is referred to typically as the forever chemical because it literally... <laughs> just will always be there um, until we do some discovery and figure out how to break it down uh, where it comes from. It's basically, it's, it's many thousands of different chemical chains that uh, stem from a lot of the fire retardants and it's, it's slippery, right? It's, sure. it's any, any kind of chemical that we put into everything now from carpets to our clothing to um, uh, firefighting foam, uh, all of this, it's slippery to resist um dirt or whatever right. it is. So so that has made its way into different water systems. And so and you were gonna I cut you off, but you no, were, it's okay. you were trying to get to Kalamazoo point, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Kalamazoo, you know, we we were talking about the it seemed like an ideal place that really on the front um line of this issue with PFAS contamination. And so um we had a lot of local experts there and URC experts in the extension we had someone from extension in the Kalamazoo area and she was really interesting because that was a place that people would they felt that they could call and say hey I'm hearing about PFAS is it safe to eat the vegetables in my garden and if I used water to 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 water them you know from the hose and so um they perform a really important function and they are often the first ones to field those kinds of questions that feed into then the research purpose. So, And, and I also really learned more about University of Michigan when I was in the legislature and they came in and testified on multiple committee hearings because they were so – I mean people think of U of M and they think mainly law school, med school, uh, business school, right? Engineering. Engineering and – but then they do so many other things that it's so amazing to me that I was very fortunate to get to hear it firsthand. And uh, I just want to touch a little bit with U of M, how they have an impact on the state too. Oh, they do. Yes. And they're in more places than most people would expect. But, um, uh, you know, the interesting thing, um, University of uh, Michigan and really all three of them, they are doing so many different things. These are very large organizations and they're not a top-down kind of place because um, creativity and passion thrives in independence and, and autonomy in the different fields, right? That's how the academy has been set up uh, for hundreds of years. And so we refer to our institutions as loosely coupled organizations, right? They're, they are connected, but they are all doing pretty amazing things. So it's hard to put your arms around the total impact uh, that they have. But interestingly enough, you know, whether you're talking about uh, developing a um, – and this is at U of M. They're developing a uh, bendable concrete that could yes. could potentially uh, impact uh, some of our infrastructure uh, renewal they call it like in the plasticrete. State. <laughs> I've, I've heard different names for it. Yeah. I saw a presentation. Uh, I actually seen the presentation a few times, and um, it's pretty pretty miraculous. Um, 
But that's that's one thing. But then they also have their intensive poverty solutions effort right here in the city and across the state. And so one of the things we like to try to do at the URC is to better understand whether or not it's it's having a physical presence in a certain community, a building or a program or something like that, which is certainly impactful and it's it's great. It's also based on the kind of work that they're doing. Is that impacting others uh, in some way across the state, even if they think they don't know necessarily where it came from, whether it's a new um, medical device that becomes available to them or um, a new policy that uh, was established at the state level that influences them, that was um, you know, developed in cooperation with some of the research, policy research that our institutions are doing. You know, it's all the whole thing. That touch point is, is pretty, pretty big. Well, yeah, and that kind of blends into my next question a little bit, and you've sort of touched on it, but uh, tech transfer, and you sort of already been alluding to that, but like you've done several big research ones, one I just attended actually not too long ago, but you want to kind of touch on some of the bigger projects and how the maybe the tech transfer part of that is helping out the state of Michigan, sure. whether through workforce or through actual private sector or public sector. Sure. So tech transfer is um, basically the efforts that universities do to help move an innovation from the lab to the market in some way. And, it, and it's working with faculty who have a discovery and getting that um, patented or um, then making it available for license or if it's a right fit, developing a new company from that. Um, as you may or may not know, um, well, you know, Ed, but uh, some of your listeners may or may not know, we benchmark our URC uh, to seven other uh, university innovation clusters across the nation. We think the toughest other clusters, we, we want to benchmark ourselves to the best. And when it comes to tech transfer, um, and we are comparing what we're doing in tech transfer with what's going on around, you know, around the nation with these other clusters. Um, one of the areas where we really stand out is in licensing, which is contrary to most people's attention in tech transfer. It usually gravitates towards startups because when you think about, well, we're starting a new company, we're spinning out these companies. It's very tangible and that, that is great, but there usually is a decision point within the tech transfer process where you either have to license it to an existing company um, or spin it out to its own company. And what we do relative to these other clusters really well is licensed technology. So recently we took a look at um, what we were doing here in Michigan um, and we found in fiscal year 2017 that we were, we had 172 licenses to to Michigan companies here. That's helping through the universities or just through the universities through the three combined. Okay. Yes. Um, so that's, that's helping, that's helping companies that exist here and that's, you know, whoever they're employing and so on and so on. So, so that's a really. No, that's, yeah, I, that, yeah. I think that's pretty clear. In fact, let me just mention again, uh, we have today as our guest, Dr. Brittany F. Alter Kane, who is the executive director for the Michigan University Research Corridor. And once again, I want to remind the listeners to Critical Conversations episodes, log in to the college's website at www.wccd.edu and select the podcast and videos button located on the home page. And I want to kind of change directions a little bit with you, but um, I know that uh, you just did some big papers 
<laughs> so why don't you at least touch on some of those, like the one we just mentioned, the infrastructure one, for example. Sure, sure, sure. So um, I guess it's about a year and a half now. Um, we put out the uh, an infrastructure paper. We wanted to take a look at what we were doing um, with infrastructure-related research and development. And we found over a five-year period, we did $1.64 billion in infrastructure-related research. What we then took that and we took it on the road because we wanted to connect better with communities on key issues of importance in the state that were infrastructure related. And so we went on a six-stop tour of the state, oftentimes to places we had not been before or did not have a lot of connection. For instance, we went to Sanilac County to talk about uh, rural access to broadband. There are a lot of technological um Innovations that could make it easier for rural communities to get online. Um, we know that's a very yeah, let's, serious Yeah, just for problem. the listeners again, broadband is sort of a general term for people to have Wi-Fi and everything in their house kind of as well as cable and <laughs> a few other things. But that's sort of like a term that the industry uses, but it's mainly so the individuals – Say if you're applying for a job and it's only online applications, and if you live in a rural community, you have to drive there if you don't have access mm-hmm, to, say, the mm-hmm. internet. Right. And I don't have the numbers in front of me yet, but um, uh, Connected Michigan is a great organization, and they they keep track of who's connected and who's not by uh, region. And I can tell you it's very significant. It was very surprising to me to learn just how many Michiganders are not connected to the internet. I, I, as somebody who, I mean, I, I can't imagine not being connected for five minutes. It's, it's hard to imagine being at home and not, not being connected. And you hear these stories, um, where, you know, there are families that roll up after dark in the cold to the parking lot of a library to sit in the minivan while the kids can get online there. At the library. After the library is even closed, do they keep the after it's closed? Yeah, because the Wi-Fi is on all night. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a problem. So the Merit Network and Joe Sawatsky, who um, he was a, a really good partner for us on this uh, effort, as well as uh, Connected Michigan. Um, you know, you, he tells these stories because he's been around the state. He's had these conversations with families. It's it's very um, it's a very big problem, and so. Part of the problem is not unlike what we found in the early uh, 20th century where not everybody was had electric access. Right. And so we had to come up with a rural electric uh, program. And sure. so Tennessee Valley Authority is a good yes, example of that. Yeah, yeah. But there are still a lot of rural electric uh, co-ops. Well, I would even say here in Detroit, there's a lot of people probably that still yes. not, might not be connected. So the the reason that's a valid point, and we recognize that as well. the The structural issues for that are slightly different than in rural areas. Um, they both are a problem, but they they require probably, different. Yeah, sure. they require different solutions. I think um, part of the problem in rural areas is there's just not a market for providers to go in there very easily, and so a lot of locals are creating their own solutions. A um, couple things too, and I, I should have, uh, maybe you touched on this, but globally, do you guys uh, sort of position yourselves? Because I know a lot of, like if you're, if you're trying to compete for federal grants, that's one thing. But then now, you know, as, uh, you know, parts of the Far East are doing so much more in universities. You know, so it's- we certainly, it's a new day, um, you know, 
talent has many choices for where to go uh, for their education. We certainly, our institutions have strategic partnerships with a number of universities around the world. Um, you know, our, our researchers are certainly doing research around the world uh, and having a global impact. Um, most of our uh, efforts are well chronicled by our universities and, and, and uh, promoted, um, so we understand better. And that's a certainly a very uh, important pride point for us, I think. I think most Michiganders can feel good about that kind of impact. Is that through the individual universities or through the URC or both? So it's mostly through the universities. Okay. And the reason for that is because our focus is primarily on Michigan and our impact on Michigan. Um, the uh, As we get kind of closer to the end, there's a couple of questions I like to ask, and I know you're not comfortable answering these. but um, <laughs> You're outing me before you even yeah, ask. Yeah, all right. Well, that's part of the show. Um, if you probably weren't in – this field. Oh, yes. Which field would you have probably – like what other thing could you have done if you were like still a high school kid, like all the different <laughs> things you wanted to do? I'll tell you a story. I don't know if I told you this or not. But uh, so when I was younger, um, I I was a track athlete and then I started coaching after college. I coached high school mostly um, and helped out with some some university teams. And I lived in Dayton at the time. And um, uh, I had we, my husband and I had just moved. It was 2000. We had just moved to Michigan, so I could start the PhD program here at Mich- at the University of Michigan. And in that fall, I got a call from our friends back in Dayton. We were part of a, a, a good running group there. Um, our coach had been Bob Shule, who. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with Bob, he, Bob was uh, is a gold medalist. He won the gold medal in the 1964 Tokyo Games for I, the 5,000 meters. Yeah, same year as Billy Mills. So I, I kind of remember the names. That's why. But go ahead. So. Yeah. So Bob is a good family friend, and he was our coach, and I coached with him a few seasons, and so we were part of that running community there. And they called friends of ours called and said, "There's a job head coach." for cross country and, and track at the University of Dayton. Do you want it? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I don't know anyone who's Very done a, tempting. anyone who's done a first <laughs> what it's like in their first semester in PhD program, anything else looks really good, right? <laughs> so, Paid gig, yeah, to do something you love. Sure. Uh, and it was one of those you know, there are not probably too many um, uh, uh, dividing points in your – where you come to the fork in the road and you got to choose, right? But in this case, um, yeah, I had to choose. And um, and I really wanted to kind of turn tail and go back down to Dayton and live my life out on the track in the elements and, you know, year in and year out. And my husband says, no, you've already made a decision. We're not going. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually grateful. But I, when you ask – what what's the what's the alternative? I probably I probably would have been a coach as long as possible. The uh, last couple of things I just want to bring up with you too is, you know, I, and I know, you know, who my sort of inspirational leaders are. But mm-hmm. uh, is there like either one historically or currently or someone that helps you? Because a lot of the people we hopefully listen to the show are students. Well, so I thought about this a lot. Um, the first thing I would want to say is I I feel extremely fortunate because I get to work with some amazing people and um, from our from our presidents to our VPs to the researchers and I I actually feel really inspired by them um, 
almost every day in my work. And so, um, so that's, that's, I would say where my primary inspiration comes from is the people I get to work with. But I know that's, you're probably looking for some specifics. Well, for somebody so else, they don't I know thought, all your friends. <laughs> so I will, I will, um, I, I thought about it and I, and I, I can say, I, I still to this day, it's, it's, it seems unconventional, but, um, Harry Truman, actually. Do you know why? No. So, that's um, the former president. Correct. Yeah. When I was in high school, uh, I was apparently such a nerd. I, the magazine I wanted my dad to to get me was American Heritage, which is a historical <laughs> magazine. Sure, I know it. And I remember one issue, and it had Harry S. Truman on the front, and it had such a heading. It said, "How could a racist become the leader of you know some, uh, the beginning of civil rights?" Right. And I'm like, "What is that? Well, I don't know that story." But the story is, and it's pretty impressive. Is um, that, you know, Harry Truman coming from Missouri, he was. He was straight up racist probably all his life. Missouri is one of the toughest states in the Civil War for that issue. You yeah. bet. You bet. And uh, was known to to say un- uncouth and horrible things. And uh, after World War II, he started hearing stories about how African-American soldiers were returning and just being brutally um, beaten or killed. And he thought that was so horrific that somebody who had fought for their country would do that. And he is the one who led the way to integrate the services after World War II. And why I find him impressive is because somebody, you know, we all make mistakes. We all are misguided. And, uh, he is someone who never shied away from saying, I made a mistake and, uh, and, and we're going to right the wrong. You know, he was, he was malleable. And sometimes I think today we think that's, not a virtue, but because we are always learning creatures, we think, you know, I think it's important to say, yeah, you know what? I got it wrong. And I think differently today than I did yesterday. So, so with that fine. answer, you actually covered the, what I consider the most important thing for most people is to have a decent balance between mind, body, and soul. Yeah. You got track included. And yeah, there you got go. Got an interesting job and uh, that's your soul answer. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Last thing is, is there anything else you want? Like if people wanted to uh, contact the URC or say students just wanted to know more about these research papers, is there a website or anything you recommend? Oh, sure. Yes. Uh, it is urcmich.org. And so you can find a lot of interesting information there. And I'm going to just say one more time because just so you know, it's you could also probably do a general Google search that would say University Research Corridor. But why don't you give the uh, site again one more time? It is urcmich.org. And you I, can, they can also follow us, though, on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Do you need any tags on those or do you know them? It's, it's okay if you it's, don't. You know what? It's URC-MISH. Okay, good. good. <laughs> so. And um, the uh, – well, you sound like you have a pretty interesting job obviously and you're making a lot of progress. And they can get all those papers on your site too, can't they? Absolutely. I think they're, they're all published. I know I looked one up on the – infrastructure one because that's what yeah. interested me a lot well uh, and you know we have a podcast too now yeah why don't you mention that a little so bit, sure. uh they are on apple podcasts you can also find links to them on our website um but they basically go through the six um the six sites we we visited uh for our innovation tour our infrastructure innovation tour yeah. What would you tell someone who's, you know, struggling, may even be an older student, not even just someone right out of high school, but what would you say to keep people on the path, you think, to get yeah, a good No, you know, I, it's hard. Everyone's journey is individual, but here's what I can say is, um, it's, it's a little harder sometimes to, uh, 
to start at the two-year because you have to make decisions along the way where you're going to go to the next two years if, if it's a four-year you want. Um, that's the, I think maybe sometimes the toughest thing is figuring out what it is you want. Um, I think always being open and to discovery and to um, what's next and what, what moves you is probably the best motivator. I will also say this, that when I was in PhD, uh, we had a lot of interesting people in my cohort and a couple of them were people who had no one in their family had ever gone to college. And, um, yeah. And, uh, and, and one of them, my friend, uh, Magdalena Martinez, she, uh, is the youngest of five kids, the only one born to migrant, uh, parents in the U.S. She was born on the 4th of July. <laughs> I, I say happy birthday to her every 4th of July. Um, it has special meaning. Uh, and she was someone who was always pursuing what's next. And she had a lot of hiccups along the way and uh, family driven in some cases, financial in others. She did uh, her two-year community college first and then eventually went on and to do a, get a four-year degree. And then one day somebody came her best friend who had the same path, who was also in my cohort, by the way, um, came home, uh, Edith Fernandez. And she said, you know what? I can get us, we can do a master's in higher ed. We're going to Harvard. It was a one-year program. And they did. And then they ended up at the University of Michigan, the both of them, to get their oh. PhD. So there's always a way. It might take a long time. It might take a lot of effort to a discovery of what you're passionate about, but it's possible, yeah. Well, it's funny you say passion. I was at an event recently with uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, and mm -hmm. it was a downriver event, but a high school kid asked her a question like, uh, how do I get into politics or something like that? And her answer was pretty interesting. She said that, you don't have to go to a political science degree. <laughs> follow your passion. You can always – you can adapt your passion to politics in any format. But you don't need necessarily a political science degree to get into politics. It would be better if you could find something that you really are passionate about and you can make a living at first mm -hmm. and then get into it later. I think that's a great point because I am someone who does have a political science degree and I, I do not want to go into politics. I'd rather just study yeah, all of you all doing it. <laughs> I know, I know the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, once again, our guest was uh, Dr. Brittany F. Alter Kane from the University Research Corridor. And thanks again, Brittany, for Thank being here today. Thank you for having today. me. Yes. And uh, with that, Critical Conversations podcast by Wayne County Community College District. Thank you for listening to Wayne County Community College District's Critical Conversations podcast with host Ed Clementi. We hope you enjoyed the show. To listen to other exciting episodes, log on to the college's website at www.wccd.edu and look for the podcast button located on the homepage. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Wayne County Community College District's Critical Conversations podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and are not reflective of this institution. The Wayne County Community College District shall not be held responsible for the misuse or reuse of this podcast series and shall not be liable for any damage resulting from the irregularity, inaccuracy, or use of information presented.